You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 83 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we are coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauket, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Kate Chambers. She's a former foreign correspondent and now involved in helping getting books and information to the people of Zimbabwe. We're going to talk with Kate about her project of getting books to libraries, schools, and everyday people in Zimbabwe, and how she shared information with people using texting and WhatsApp. But first, let's get to learn a little bit about Kate. So this is really a treat for us to have you on the podcast. You're the first guest that we've actually had who was in Zimbabwe and Africa. So from our conversations on WhatsApp, I've learned you're from the UK originally, right? That's where you grew up? That is, yeah. Thanks, Chris and Bob, um, for having me. I grew up mostly in a small market town. It's called Horncastle. Um, it's in eastern England uh, in the county of Lincolnshire. And so it was a really rural upbringing. Um, we lived at the top of the hill. Um, it was called Langton Lane. It was opposite a windmill that didn't have any sails. It was pretty good for going to school. You could go all the way downhill really easily. It was much worse coming back home at the end of the day. Um, it was a little way from the main train line. If you know London, I guess we were about two or three hours from there. The nearest city was a place called Lincoln. And as a teenager, I'd take the bus. It was a 15-minute trip to Lincoln. I'd go clothes shopping, and I'd always pop into the county library there. It, it really fascinates me how England versus Wales and, and Scotland and all that, you could be – London is so big, and yet you could be so far away from it, yet still be – like, you know, you could still be by the channel and not near London. Yeah, true. And it felt when I was growing up, it felt it felt a long way from London. We went maybe, I don't know, four or five times a year. Um, but but re that really felt like the big city. That was the big um, urban um, you know, center compared to where I lived, which was in the middle of fields and, and, and countryside. So you've certainly done many things in your career. Tell us how your path has led you to Zimbabwe. So this was absolutely not what my parents were expecting. So I studied modern languages at university. I then went on to do an MPhil in European literature um, and I got funding to do a PhD. Um, it was on a medieval French writer. I mentioned the funding actually because um, what happened next was because of that funding, it just made it so unexpected. So I actually decided after doing my PhD for a few months that this wasn't what I wanted to do. So I ran away. I, I changed my mind. I slipped a note under the supervisor's door and I went to London. I stayed there just for a couple of months and then I, I went to Paris. I had contacts there. I'd studied French um, and I started to work just about in the lowliest position possible on the editorial staff of the International Herald Tribune that was still in existence at the time. And I moved around fairly quickly. I moved to UNESCO Radio and then I moved to Agence France Presse, which was the French, which is still the French state news agency. And um, on a reporting trip to Southern Africa, I met a man who would go on to become my husband. Uh, six months after I met him, I married him and I decided to come and live um, with him in, in Southern Africa. I mentioned, I mean, I mentioned those things because because there are two there are two things that I learned through them. One was that uh, it's totally possible when you make a mistake um, to to change your course. I mean, to admit that you've made a mistake and uh, and then and then just do something totally different. And I actually found looking back that that was an incredibly empowering thing to do. Um, and, and and that's helped me. That's really helped me with the library project. You know, sometimes you can't just doggedly persevere with the way you've been doing something for a long time. You have to be flexible. You have to be ready to change. And and being decisive is also is also a big a big part of of myself. Not always the right decisions, but being able to make a decision really quickly. So yeah. So I ended up from from uh, university in England through France to Southern Africa and and to Zimbabwe to working with books. That's an amazing story. And do you, thank you. <laughs> so, 
why Zimbabwe? Why did you pick that particular country? So, so he's actually from Zimbabwe. My oh. husband's from Zimbabwe. And okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's important when you fall in love with somebody. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. Uh, so in one of the articles you wrote for Christian Science Monitor, um, you mentioned how you fell in love with books as a child. Can you share that story with us? Okay, so there were quite a few articles I wrote for the Christian Science Monitor and had to do with books. I have to say that I didn't I didn't just write for the, the Christian Science Monitor. I was a contributor for them, but I wrote for a number of other papers um, when I was um, in, in, in the region. I think... I think the one that you maybe are thinking of is where I talked about the library in Horncastle, that town that I grew up in. And the amazing thing about that library was that it was and still is built over a slab of Roman wall. So when you you go into this library, you go up the steps and you go through the first the entrance door to the library. And there you see this this huge, big, thick piece of ancient wall. It's protected with a piece of glass. Um, and of course, as a child, you know, you accept that as being totally normal. It's only when I look back now as an adult that it just seems amazing that that was such a big part of my childhood. Another thing I think about now is that that library was was slightly, you know, it was built quite high up. And that was because it was by the river. Horncastle's built on two rivers, the Bain and the Waring. And occasionally, certainly during my, fl- uh, my childhood, those rivers would flood. And so the library needed to be, you know, it needed to be above um, above above river level. And so I spent a lot of time in that library as a child. My, my parents, they didn't buy lots and lots of children's books. Um, they did have books, a lot of books in the house. A lot of those were adult books, but they they made sure that we had access to libraries. So both the, the town library and of course school libraries. I, I'm trying to, I was thinking about it today and thinking that there was, there was one secondhand bookshop in the town and there was also a stationers, Perkins of stationers. I think that might've had a few books on a shelf, but there really weren't a lot of books available, you know, um, to buy at the time. And to be honest, I think as a teenager, I spent my money on clothes rather than books anyway. But but I always had access to the library and the library was a safe place. Um, my parents would come and pick me up. You know, they, they'd leave us there for the morning while they did errands and they'd come and pick me and my sisters up there later. And it was also a place where, where you saw lots of people, whether those were school friends, elderly friends. Um, there, were, there would be people reading papers there. Um, we would take our little sister to read books in the children's corner. So it was really a place of community as well. So just because we've never been there, and of course, Chris, uh, you know, we're going to plan to do an episode from Zimbabwe someday, right? Sure. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to live in Zimbabwe? Yeah, of course. So so I can speak from a from a purely personal level, I mean, as somebody who didn't grow up here and conscious of the, you know, the privileges I've got, um, but also as somebody who's got a lot of friends and contacts with, you know, people here from, from, you know, different backgrounds, different professions. I should say that I live these days mostly in the, the capital Harare. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a very, busy big place about two million people the second city is is called Bulawayo it's about five hours from Harare and it's also a beautiful beautiful city and I think I think if you know if you don't live in a place um, or or you haven't visited one the idea that you have of it and I'm talking about kind of any place any place that seems foreign to you, you know you get snapshots from from what the media gives you and and those are always part of the story I mean, I speak as somebody who was a former um, foreign correspondent and who is who contributed you know, in, in, in the work that I did in the past to those snapshots. I think about when I moved to Paris, you know, I before I moved there, I'd studied French, but I had this really romantic idea of the Eiffel Tower and, and Sacré-Cœur. And I did live by Sacré-Cœur for a while. But but when I look back now, um, my understanding of Paris and my memories of Paris and my memories of France are much more granular because they are... Um, they are linked to all the people I met there and, and yeah, and even the books I read while I was there and the places I visited. So it was a much, it was a it is now a much richer, sort of deeper understanding of a place. And I think that, I think that's absolutely the same about my experience living in Zimbabwe. I traveled across the country this morning. I traveled from Harare um, to the east of the country to Matari. And that's a three to four hour drive, depending on the traffic. And I can say that. On that trip this morning, you know, we went past a lot of greenery. There were rains this week. So 
you know, so so trees looking pretty fantastic in some places. Um, went through a couple of re- sort of medium-sized towns, Marandera, Rusapi. I'm um, seeing a a big new supermarket in, or certain big new front of a supermarket in Marandera that I that I hadn't seen last time. I mean, again, speaking speaking from a personal point of view, there are deep economic and political problems. Um, in Zimbabwe, that that if you if you watch the news, you you will be aware of, and those have had a pretty massive effect on on many many people here. I, I think after um, living here for a long time and coming in and out of the country, and 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 also being in the region, I think I think what I can what I can say is that definitely the biggest resource of the country is its people. I mean, I've just in the time I've spent here, and, and in many ways I've grown up here, you know, I, I you know, we, we've we've had children in the region, um, you know, I've, my children are at school here. I mean, we've just met amazing friends and and people who have, who've challenged some of the ideas I had, who've taught me so much. I mean, who, people who who just have these brilliant ideas and, and who continue to impress me that's both within the kind of literary world and the, and people doing stuff with libraries and and much wider so in the cultural world as well and and you know beyond that so I think I think that what I would say is what I what I love about living here is is, is I love um the the friends that I've made the people I've got to know um, the, the the you know the amazing different um, things I've been exposed to. So so that in itself has been a really positive experience. It sounds amazing, uh, and it sounds like it's a completely different environment than obviously than you grew up in. I can't imagine picking up my life and bringing it all the way two continents away. So that must have been an amazing experience, and I'm actually kind kind of jealous because that that sounds so adventurous in a way. Thanks. Yeah, I mean it's. It was, I didn't plan it, but it's been very rich. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to chat with Kate about her love of books and her love of learning and how that transformed into her receiving books from all around the world and distributing them through Zimbabwe. What a real, what the real value of a book is there. And especially because there isn't a lot of access to books there and how texting and WhatsApp became a tool in the fight against COVID-19. And we'll be right back. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book, Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. We are back with Kate Chambers. So you get to Africa, you meet amazing people, and you learn not only of the desire to learn, but also the love that people have there for books. How did you go from being a journalist to creating a grassroots movement to get people from the rest of the world to send you books? It sounds like a Herculean task. So in some ways, it was a logical progression. So so how it really started was in 2010 to 2011, I had written a couple of pieces. I think those were definitely for the Christian Science Monitor, um, in which I mentioned that it was that the people you know, wanted books. Um, it, I had my son was my first child was small at the time. Um, it was hard to get him books, especially new books. And and when you did see those books on sale, they were just totally the prices of them were just totally out of kilter with salaries. I mean that's that's still the same today. Um, I've just had a a small amount of funding from a U.S. organization called Wary to buy um, local 
books written by local authors. Now, the publishing industry is is struggling here, but there are some local authors doing, you know, writing writing this amazing stuff, and a lot of it is self-published. And when I went out to to look, that there aren't a huge number of book uh, bookshops in Harare. When I went out to look at these books um, that were on sale, they they are generally the locally published books are between ten and twenty US per book. Um, the thing is that uh, many of those people who are formally employed here are getting the equivalent um, of around forty US dollars a month. So. It, it, it's just not an option um, to, to to buy a book for 10, 10 US dollars. I mean, it, it's just even even however much you love books, um, it's just not a viable option to 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 pay that kind of money out of a salary that has got to stretch to lots of you know lots of other things. And so, when I wrote um, those articles, you know. I didn't have a clear aim in mind. You talk a lot now these days about solutions journalism. It certainly wasn't an attempt at solutions journalism. It was more you know, personal reflections. But what happened was people started write, writing to my editor um, in the US to say, look, how can we help? And he was forwarding me these emails of people, you know, th these articles were, were, were spreading and people saying, we really want to help. How can we help get books to you? And I finally realized that I had a chance to be able to match requests that I had been getting from people within the community and and within the city that I was living in then. Um, I was living in um, Matari at the time, um, and um, which, is, which is where I later was doing some lecturing in a local university. And so I'd been getting these requests for books and, and, and I couldn't match them um, you know, before I wrote this article. And so I realized that I could, here was a chance to be able to match the requests with people who are willing to send. And so I started answering the requests. My, my editor was faithfully forwarding to them, uh, these to me and saying, look, you know, people are asking for this kind of book, you know, new books for children, books on conservation, books for adult learners. And so I could be very specific with the requests and match them with the with the institutions. Um, and and that's and that's how it started. And I mean, and and it was a wide variety of of institutions and people who started approaching me. Um, so from kind of formal libraries to people who were in education and people who were doing sort of informal adult learning classes. Um, and so I was just doing you know, matching the two things. And these these parcels just started coming from 2011 and they just kept coming. And it, the, the project took on its own momentum. In about 2014, I started daring to post to Twitter. I'd done very little before on Twitter. Um, and I saw that that would be an opportunity to both encourage the people who are sending books and to, to get out the word a little bit more about you know, this being a possibility. And so... I started posting piles of the books to Twitter and saying, you know, these, these books are going and thank you to X, X and X people who had, had sent them. And, and that's again, how, how it took off, you know, more people saw the tweets and wanted to send books. And also conversely, more people within Zimbabwe or within the Zim Zimbabwean diaspora um, said, wow, this is great. You know, either how can we be involved or I know people who need these books. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's basically the model. People now are still reaching out all the time. People who, you know, who, who, who have a club that they want to start or, or people who know of a need. And, and, and my job is to, to try and, and funnel the right books to the right people. That's amazing. It sounds like, it, I mean, we'll get into the logistics later, but I, I can't imagine what you would do once you get everything too. I mean, the distribution and all that other stuff too. Yeah. So it's, um, it's it's something that I fit in round, you know, that this isn't my full time job. I, I, I have another job that I do, but I but I fit it round my job and um the the thing that drives me is is my own absolute passion for books and, and getting books out there and my own knowledge of what a difference books can make in, in a life and my recognition that books and reading is catching um, and, and the, you know the more you 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 see people reading the more you want to read and 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 also that books, you know as I saw when I was growing up, it, it, you didn't actually have to possess those books. You just needed access to those books. And that's the important thing. So tell us what the process is when you receive books, where they come from and where they go. 
that must be a costly logistical task. And is the Zimbabwe government somehow involved in that effort? So, yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, it, a lot of the books, certainly at the moment, um, come from within Zimbabwe. Um, that's been one of the really good um, effects if I can call it good, of, of COVID. Um, but, but also, I mean, for all these years, a lot of the books have come in from other countries, a lot of them from the States, from the UK, but also Israel, Poland, South Africa. I'm, you know, I've, I lose track sometimes, but, but they have come in from a lot of countries. So, so what happens is there is this email exchange. I have multiple email conversations going on that I try to put into time boxes. And so an email exchange comes, we, we discuss what kind of books people often will tell me, you know, I've sent a parcel today. Um, if they're coming from the States, you know, I, I warn people that it can take a long time. Sometimes this can take months. Um, a good thing is that very few of the parcels have ever gone missing, but sometimes they've taken six to eight months to get here. You know, they go through the regular postal system. So when they do arrive here, um, I get a slip in my post box. Um, I work with two post offices here, really. And so um, I, I get a slip. There's a, a brilliant guy at the post office near to my house in Harare, um, a guy called um, Mr. Hope Day, Tendai Hope Day. And he it really takes it upon himself. He knows what I do. And he makes sure that those slips are personally delivered into my hands. And then I have to, um, I have to take delivery of the boxes. I pay a fee per parcel um, to to receive receive the books, and um, generally I um, get get some help to to bring them back to my house. And then um, there is a corner of the house that is devoted to boxes and boxes of piles of books um, and empty boxes to 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 sort those books into. So so. The other part of it is, of course, sending out the books within Zimbabwe. I have a list which is constantly being revisited of the kind of books that different places and, and people are asking for. Um, and that plays in my mind as well. So when, when I open a box and I see what, see what the books are and who it's from, I know normally, okay, that one will work for this particular person who's trying to get books into this particular community. Um, but as I say, that that's constantly revamped. So, so, and then I have to parcel the books up and the next step is to dispatch them. Um, dispatching takes several forms. I do work um, with FedEx um, and FedEx has been pretty good about getting books into some of the, some really remote places. Um, sometimes it is not FedEx. Some, I have a network of people that I have worked with, network of people and organizations who have been, have been great at, 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 you know, really keen to get books into communities. And so sometimes it's individual people who are, you know, who know that I'm doing this and who, who have put me in contact with a teacher or, 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 or a lecturer or, um, or, or somebody who's, who's running a club and they will personally ferry the books. Um, I've had help from organizations who have put books onto their lorries. Um, I have books at the moment going to a, um, a refugee camp in Tonga, called Tongagara Refugee Camp um, in Chipingi. There's a, a, an amazing group of volunteers who are running a, um, a library there and an educational facility. And those books go with a, an NGO, um, with one of the UN agencies, and they go on a lorry there. So, so that in itself is a, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big mission trying to sort that out. Um, I mean, just one example, late last night um, in Harare, I was by my gate talking to a woman who um, who is getting books. She's starting to get books into her community in Umberengua. Um, and so she and I had corresponded on WhatsApp. Um, we had worked out what she needed and what I could provide from what I already had in stock and what I could let other senders know that she needed. And so she came past in her car and picked up a box of books that she will take out as soon as she gets a chance to go back to her community. So, you know, it's, it's very, very grassroots, both, both bringing things in and getting them out. And, and a lot of people involved in this big network that spans all sorts of um, sorts of corners of the community. And I should say as well that, you know, it's not just books, as you guys will know, you know, libraries don't just deal in things. So, uh, you know, depending on what's going on some of the libraries or the clubs will ask for other things i've got one at the moment that is asking for baking equipment so so sort of centrally managed baking equipment that can go out to to women who are 
um, doing their own income generating projects and so need need more baking trays for cooking. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. So yeah, that makerspaces kind of stuff and library of things kind of reality is even in Zimbabwe. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and there have been other things, you know, Cyclone and I um, hit the east of the country pretty badly at the beginning of last year. Um, one of the people who runs one of the library clubs in the east of the country was in a community that was that was hit badly by Cyclone and I, and he was um, he, he was personally helping um, to to shelter some of the people who had lost their homes, and so he at that point needed very different things sending he did he did pivot quick quickly quick, fairly quickly backly in and in, into into needing you know books and and crayons and stationery but just over that cyclone die period um there were other things that that he needed to be able to give out that, that weren't just books well you had mentioned earlier and in a couple of the articles you, you had written about library clubs tell us more about them because it seems like that's a a community almost um are they like book clubs here in the u.s where people get together and discuss a title or do they sit and discuss multiple titles tell us about it yeah that's a great question so so library clubs you know it's it's a um again it's a grassroots thing and and i have to when i talk about this have to give absolute credit to to the people who run these in the communities um these are generally people who reach out to me and say I know that you do this thing. I know that you can provide books. I want to set up one of these clubs in my community. Um, and can you help me? And, and my role very much in, in, in that area, I see as being a, you know, a supporter and enabler. I'm somebody that they can bounce ideas from. Um, I can support with comms. And of course, I can get books to them through the, through the network of supporters that I, that I already have. And, and there are a lot of conversations that go on, um, w you know, with people who are involved in that kind of thing. Obviously, these days, there's a lot of conversation to be had around safeguarding issue. And those are things that we, you know, that we, we work through together. Um, you know, lots and lots of conversations over WhatsApp and, and working out strategies to address all these different issues that, that go into setting up and managing and, and ensuring that the, the sort of long time stability of this kind of club. So yeah, the works and communities, um, absolutely, you know, amazing people who are driving this in, in sometimes quite difficult situations. Um, the guy I spoke about before, um, who was involved in the east of the country during Cyclone Adai, he is based in Chapingi. His name is Kuran Musada. Um, and he has absolute passion for books. He's a writer himself. He's just um, finished the draft of his first book. Um, I was privileged to, um, to, to to be given that to have a first look at. And he uh, works with a small team of volunteers. I mean, this isn't, again, isn't his, his main business. It's just something he's absolutely passionate about. I've been sending books to him. He has other people who give him books and he takes these books around the community. Sometimes they take them literally around in, in rucksacks and, and, and make sure that it's particularly in his area, it's particularly children and, and kids and sports clubs. He's been working with um, an organization most recently um, that, that helps some of the children who live in the streets. And he's just making sure that he can um, get books to, to some of these children who otherwise wouldn't get a chance um, to see this kind of, you know, new and, 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 and interesting literature. Um, there is another guy um, who is really, really active and energetic, and he works in, the, in Chilocho, which is in the south of the country. It's a really dry area, Matabilianand. He's a farmer and a businessman, but he's also you know, incredibly passionate about books and, and really wants to respond to community needs. So he, for example, is running um, with um, Constance, Constance Dube, he's running um, a, um, a club that not only makes sure that books and stationery get out to children, but also that they are running a, a library of things of sorts. So he's the one who, who, who's asking for the, the baking trays. Um, he is trying to get these to, 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 to women who are involved in 
um, in, income generating projects in the community. The kind of literature that he needs often is um, the kind of literature that he can distribute to clinics, um, rural clinics in, the, in, 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 in these rural areas where women um, are, you know, have gone for, for medical attention and they need information about, you know, looking after their families or, or certain healthcare conditions. So, yeah, um, the clubs are um, a really grassroots way of getting um, books and other needed things into communities where there may not be a formal library building, but there is a, a, a real desire to, 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 to be exposed to this kind of thing. Well, you know, it's, it's really kind of cool because they're like a library without the brick and mortar. And it's something that here in the States we've been kind of struggling with with COVID-19, where how do you have an identity as a library without having the actual physical building? And it sounds like with what you're describing with your library clubs, those library clubs are kind of like libraries without a building. That is absolutely it. And the, and the books the books are portable um, and they go to you know, to different whether it's in a rucksack or whether it's in boxes, they just go to the people um, who want them. And so, yeah, it, it is absolutely what you say. That that really is a, an interesting concept because it's definitely thinking outside the box from the from the perspective here in the states. It's complete reversal. So it's like that that bookmobile without even a bookmobile. It's it's just kind of uh, it's it's literally grassroots with boots on the ground. Absolutely, and I remember, I remember those those bookmobiles as a child. I mean, in in rural Lincolnshire, there were also bookmobiles that went around some of the villages. Then, um, I know that, um, for example, Curran and Chapingi, you know, he he would love to actually have a vehicle that he could that he could drive drive around. At the moment, it's it's just not possible. So so he does it with boots on the ground and and with incredible dedication. Kate, what are some of the numbers like, the statistics, like how many items do you, do you even know, how many you do a month or how many you process uh, in and out? So, so yeah, so it's, it, it goes up and down because it depends a lot on the, the, you know, the donations I get. So, for example, um, during, during COVID, I had um, a couple of really um, great donations from within the country. I mean, so I, so I do... One of the great things is that a lot of Zimbabweans get, have, have got involved, and so people will um, get in touch with me and say, "Look, I've got this. You know, I've got this collection of magazines, and you know, I don't want to just dump them on you. But do you, if I tell you what they are, do you think you've got a market for them?" And for example, in, in the case of the re, the remote library, the mobile library in Chilocho, um, some of those magazines that were being offered at a certain point were exactly what I needed because they had issue, they had articles on women's health, and that was that was really what was wanted at the time. So the two big donations that that I got um, within the last couple of months, one was from a um, a British um, development worker who was leaving, and she um, left um, me with a, a wonderful. Um, collection of of books, I would say probably um, about between 100 and 200 um, books. Um, and then one was from an, in, the international school um, in Harare, and they gave me um, I think nine boxes, um, each with probably about 40 books in. Um, so so that was a pretty those. That, that was pretty um, exceptional months. I would say on average, in a non-COVID month, I get about, um, this is really, really on average, between 100 and 200 books going in. And I would probably put, distribute a little less than that going out because I don't, because I'm matching with people so often, not all of the books that come in that particular month are suitable to go out at the same time. Sure. Um, yeah, but, but, but I mean, it lit, the number of books that have gone out over the years is, you know, is, is you know, well into the, the, the thousands that have, that have, have been dispatched. That's fantastic. So you had said earlier too that you get book donations not from the states and the UK, but from other nations. I think you said Poland was one of them. Now I'm making the assumption these are all English language books. Is that always true, though? 
So, so they are. So, so, so English, you know, is 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 the main language in Zimbabwe. There are um, there are a number of um, of languages um, that are spoken locally. The two main ones are Shona and Ndebele. And so, what I try to do locally is, when I can, to procure books written in these local languages. I've just, I think I mentioned earlier, I've had a donation from. Um, an American institute, which allows me to to purchase um, some books in in local languages, and obviously that is something that I would like to push forward with as much as I can. That's fantastic, Chris. We got to find a way to to somehow help donate some more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> well, we will. You know, we'll at least get your get the uh, get the word out there, and I'm sure we can do something. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so unfortunately, we have to segue into uh, I'm sure COVID discussion, but. Um, tell us a little bit about what happened in April and how COVID-19 affected your book distribution and how your shift to educate the people of Zimbabwe about the latest pandemic news using texting and, and WhatsApp. So Zimbabwe went into lockdown at the end of March and I saw straight away, um, it, was, it was a pretty tight lockdown, and that, so I saw straight away that the delivery of parcels was going to be affected immediately. And it was clear too that I, you know, even if parcels could get through, and they didn't, but I could see that even if they could get through, I wasn't going to be able to get them out. Um, there was no, um, there was no sort of interprovincial travel allowed, and so the certainly the private individuals who I had relied upon to get some of these books into different parts of the country just weren't going to be able to do that. Um, Formal libraries, as happened in, in most of the rest of the world, I understand, you know, just weren't working. And and some of the books I uh, I get do go to you know, formal library buildings within Zimbabwe, um, and I knew that that you know that that wasn't going to work. The library clubs, um, because I'm in contact with them, uh, you know, several times a week, um, I I knew that maybe we could do something slightly different, and. The advantage with those library clubs, you know, we've talked about them before, is that they can be pretty agile, and you can, you know, you can respond pretty quickly um, to 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 the demands on the ground. And so, um, the the club that's run by Elvis and Debelli in Chilocho, um, Elvis got hold of me and said, you know, I need to get information out. You know, we we we're in a really remote area. We need to get information out to, to people about COVID, about how to protect yourself from it. How are we going to do this? And so between us, we pulled together some of the information that the UN agencies here were distributing and we sent it um, out to, to Elvis, you know, in, in the most basic form. So lots of people here in the rural areas you know, possibly wouldn't have WhatsApp, but there, there, there are, you know, f- mobile phone penetration is, is, is pretty high in Zimbabwe. It may not be, you know, it may not be your latest smartphone but but it will be phones that are whatsapp enabled so we could get um information to um via whatsapp on the pandemic and and this is totally driven by um elvis in Chilocho, you know pumping out the whatsapps um with these screenshots um into local whatsapp groups i mean one of the big issues again is that um, while mobile phone penetration is high, I mean, data affordability is also an issue, as is network coverage. So in Elvis's area, you know, they, they, he, he talks a lot about um, certain parts of, the, of his area where there is no network coverage. And then there are these trees that people congregate at because in that particular area, there is good coverage. And that's where you can go and get your WhatsApps. If you stand by the tree, um, you'll be able to get your WhatsApps in. So. And he's got some pretty fabulous pictures that he's taken on his own phone of of these trees. So he he did a great job of getting um, of getting information out into his community, and he pivoted pretty fast into trying to give lessons via WhatsApp, into trying to provide a free tutoring service to the many children in that area who weren't. Um, who who weren't able to go to school at the time, and who obviously didn't have access to um, the kind of online learning that um, that 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 some children in, in in other areas, particularly other areas of the world, were were able to access. Curran and Chapingi, um, he did um, he he wanted to get um, stories out to children in the community, also using data, um, and so he. 
um, did some amazing work with um, with colleagues and, and volunteers on his team by recording some of the stories. So taking the books that he got and and recording them um, on onto audio notes and sending out those with sometimes with you know with 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 a bit of music and and sending those out to you via whatsapp and so you know I, I was just in admiration of of what what these guys were doing you know at the grassroots still trying to get um stories and vital information out into their communities that's amazing stuff it's impressive it is so how is it there now with COVID and, and have you returned the, to book distribution openly or is it something that's still, still kind of curtailed? So, as I said, we went into lockdown, you know, in, in, in March and um, the toll, the, the, the actual sort of in, infection rates in Zimbabwe haven't been um, as high, I think, as had been feared. I think that is, is the case um, in, in several countries in the region and, um, scientists and researchers are, are still trying, trying to work out exactly what the reasons for that for, are. I mean, in Zimbabwe, um, I was looking at the latest figures. I think the number of confirmed COVID cases is still, or it was yesterday, just under 9,000. Um, and there have been 250 deaths from COVID. And that's in a population of plus or minus 14 million people. So, um, you know, of course, there are other consequences to lockdown. So, so while the infection rates haven't been as high, you know, that that there have been, as there are in many other countries, um, negative con- consequences around, you know, a rise in um, incidence of GBV and, you know, effects on the on the on employment, on salaries. I mean, the tourism sector, which was which, you know, Zimbabwe is is you know very keen to to revive. I mean, I think. That obviously suffer pretty bad losses, but um, we the kids have gone back to school um, very recently. In fact, my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, went back last Monday. Um, some of the kids in exam classes, so those who were taking public exams, went back earlier. So yes, I mean distribution has picked up. I've been able to distribute since the end of the first hard lockdown, which was. Trying to remember about about a good sort of three four months ago, um, the parcels aren't still aren't coming through nearly as much as they were, um, but we've been able to or I've been able to compensate by these local donations, both um, the ones I mentioned and others, and and by this this funding that I that I've had in the form of a donation, which is allow which is allowing me to purchase some local books. I would assume you'd have to do some quarantining too as things come in, right? Especially if they come from the States. So um, I have to say that when the parcels come through, I mean, they, they sit for quite a while in the post office before they are delivered to me. I, I don't, you know, I don't follow the process of this end too closely. Um, so I'm not sure if that's deliberate or if that is just, you know, as things happen. Um, so when the parcels come through now, um, I think the last the last parcels I got were about two two weeks ago, um, and yeah, I haven't had any since then. Wow, I can't wait to give plugs later because I definitely want to get get the word out there about um, about what you're doing. I was just going to say that because really. this is this is amazing work. Got the plugs out there. So. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So. We really want to thank you for taking time out of your day and evening to speak with us and sharing your perspective because this is this is amazing stuff and um, it's an eye opener for for us here in the states because we take a lot of this stuff for granted. So when we come back, we're going to be asking Kate our top ten library questions or what we like to call the O three two list, which is a Dewey number for top ten lists. And um, this is a bit of a challenge because Kate doesn't necessarily work in a library or in the library world per se, um, but we're going to give it a shot. We kind of modify things a little bit, so we'll still have some fun with it. And as always, we give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list of questions that we're going to ask our guests. So we will be right back. We are back with Kate Chambers, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. 
The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com, and they do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you so much to Literary Hub. Okay, so are you ready? I am. Okay, so what did you want to be when you were a child? I wanted to be a vet. So I loved animals. My parents allowed me to keep rabbits, and we had a dog, and I... Like many, many um, British children, I, I grew up with the tail end of Beatrix Potter. But then I realized, partly through watching James Herriot, who was a vet in the UK, I realized that lots of these animal stories have really sad endings. And I just didn't think I had the heart uh, to deal with that on a daily basis. What is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? So I think I've told you earlier in the program about Horncastle Library, which is where my parents took me. My mum also volunteered there um, when I was a small child. Um, there was one other thing. As a very small child, I was in hospital for a while. I had a tracheostomy. And so I do remember books then. Um, not a formal library as such, but but I think that was probably looking back, that was my first um, experience of libraries not being in a conventional place not being in the place you'd expect them to be so when did you decide we kind of covered this before but it we modified this question to make it work a little bit better when did you decide to work with books and support people in libraries and as again we're saying this is a modified question you know was this something obviously this wasn't your first this isn't really a career path but you know how did this turn into a career path so i as i said before i was a journalist and even when I was working as a journalist, um, a lot of a lot of my work was with books. I mean, the first time I came over to Southern Africa, I had books in my bag, along with my little, you know, dictaphone to record audio. I had books that I bought at the air, at the airport to read on the plane. Um, I think I also had two thousand dollars in one of my shoes, um, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, so, so, I book, books had been my life for a long time, and and so. Looking back, it was just logical that that the work moved on. That some of the some of the writing that I did um, spoke about books um, when I wasn't having to do sort of tough news reporting or, or political analysis in, in in different areas. That you know, I, I wrote about things that I was thinking about, and obviously, I was thinking about books. Um, I also worked for a while as a lecturer um, in um, a university in Eastern Zimbabwe, um, and. Um, students there, you know, we would we would talk at the beginning and end of class about books, and I would share books. And students then would would because I was already distributing books um, by then. So students then would take books back with them into their communities if they, you know, if if there were projects that I was supporting there. So they were also a great help to me. So who would you say is your favorite fictional librarian? So this one, my favorite fictional librarian, I was stumped when I think about this, but I have I have a big child and a little child. My little child is eight, and she has been really into a series called Wings of Fire, which is by, um, I think, uh, Tweety Sutherland, and she keeps telling me about a librarian who is a dragon. I think the librarian is called Starflight. And when I when I asked her a bit more about this this dragon librarian, she said he is kind and clever. So I'm going to pick him as my favorite librarian. There you go. This is a first. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it's great. Though. So, what would you be doing if you weren't working with this project, serving people who love books and libraries? So I have to say straight away that actually this project isn't my full time job. I work in communications, um, but getting books into communities is, is definitely a big passion of mine. Another is, yeah, apart from getting books into communities, is getting a bigger audience for local authors. Um, as I said before, the publishing industry in Zimbabwe is small and it, it's struggling, but there are still people writing books. And, and this is just absolutely brilliant that people still do this and still self-publish. Um, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to 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 support some of these authors by by finding means of of purchasing their work. Um, so I think uh, if I wasn't doing this, I would still be doing something to do with books, and I would probably be trying to finish my own books, writing them. That is. So, what would you say is your favorite section of the library? 
I don't have much choice in this. It's the children's section. So there is a library um, that's not too far from my house in, in Harare. It's um, Mount Pleasant Library. It is a, um, a, a very well um, supported library, it has a lot of donations. Um, and whenever I go with my daughter there, I get dragged to the children's section and we look at all the children's books. Okay, so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the libraries that you help? I guess to, to the library, um, the library clubs, right? Yeah. So obviously, I would, I would add more books. I would, you know, I would just increase the volumes of of books that I could get into into those communities, um, and I would do what I could to encourage Zimbabwe authors um you know that, that there are a number of Zimbabwean authors who are very rightly known well outside of Zimbabwe there are also quite a few who who keep on writing here and who write great stuff which is very popular um uh, but who just aren't known you know even within Zimbabwe themselves their books just aren't distributed they're, they're just not published on on a big scale so you know, within the last week, I've been reading a book by a guy called Ralph Katerira. Um, He is a motivational speaker and um, he has written a couple of, of books. One of them, a pretty hard hitting book about the um, about sexual workers um, in Zimbabwe. Um, and then so, so I've been reading his stuff. I've been reading or I've been getting hold of um, a lady called Edith Utete, who's um, just about to publish a book that she wrote during COVID called When the World Stood Still. And then another book that I found about three weeks ago um, by a, an author called Rutendo Guatizzo called Born to Fight. And it's this amazing story um, of um, her, her, her life's journey. I mean, it starts with her. Um, she's moved out to live in the countryside with her mum. It's a true story. And she wakes up at night. Her mum shakes her awake and there are elephants outside the house. And, you know, she, she hasn't seen them before. And you know, this is, you know, they're, they're worried. I mean, obviously they, they survived to tell the tale, but it's, it's just a, a fascinating um, account of her, of her, um, her life and her struggles and, and her successes. So I would, really really want to get more exposure for authors like these um from zimbabwe i think just to add there i mean one of the reasons for that is as a former journalist you are always terrified that your story you know the story that you've labored over falls into a big black hole that was always your terror that you you know that you 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 checked all your facts and you met the deadline and you got the required number of words and and you thought it was a good story and just nobody reads it and nobody reacts to it. And that terror of the big black hole, you know, I'd like to spare other people that. Yeah, we know what that's like. We think about that every time we launch an episode. <laughs> 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 so uh, what would you say you absolutely love about libraries? So I, I, I love I love the access um, the idea of access to books um, and the idea of, you know, reading being catching and that, you know, if you as a child, you see your parent reading, you you know, you're much more likely to to read yourself. Um, and that, that going back to the idea of accessibility, I mean, it has to be physical accessibility. Books have to be literally within physical reach of people. Um, it's no good saying, you know, we've got to get people reading if if, if books aren't aren't nearby. Um and if in a room, the books for small children aren't on the lowest shelf. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the ideas I, I think about a lot. And community, you know, libraries, um, whether they provide books or baking trays or um, access to data or lessons, they are a place where place of community and where ideas are, are shared and, and information is spread. Okay, so uh, what is the weirdest thing that's happened in your career? So originally, this this question was weirdest thing that ever happened in your library, but you know, obviously, you're not in the library. So, I mean, I'm sure being being a journalist, you've seen some pretty weird stuff, right? I have, but you know what? I'm going to take it back to a weird thing in the library. Sure. Um, so this is for um, this is before I, I, you know, I got to to Southern Africa. This is actually dates back to my postgrad days, and it is a terrible, terrible confession. So, I was at the time studying, you know, medieval authors like Dante and Petrarch, and um, 
there were a group of us studying them and it was always a race for the library books you know these crit the, these crit literary critiques on these kind of texts and there weren't enough of them to go around and so even though we often couldn't take these books out I'm talking now about the it was a library in, in Cambridge in the UK you, even if you couldn't actually take the books out if you couldn't get your hands on the book um you wouldn't be able to read it in time to do your essay so the terrible thing that my friends and I would do is when we got these books out of the literary section at the end of the day just before the library bell rang we would go and hide them in the chemistry stacks where nobody else could find them and so sometimes I think you know when I wake up in the dead of night if, if this you know if I'm not trying to atone for the terrible things that I did to librarians back then by messing up all their classification systems <laughs> That's actually pretty funny because people still do that. Oh, do they? Yeah. I say, what an original! It wasn't an original crime then. No, no, no. And I think the statute of limitations has run, so I think you're okay. Yes, yeah, probably not going to get in any trouble anytime soon. Right? No. no. <laughs> so, did you have a favorite regular client? I guess is it or, or um, a client, but patron i guess not really a patron right like a library club member like library Elvis club or something member, maybe a favorite <laughs> favorite library so 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 there's so many people like absolutely brilliant people that i work with now um and who i am totally in awe of i'm in awe of you know the the the, the drive that they have and and the work that they do in, in sometimes really difficult situations so i'm actually going to take this back to before i started the library club um the library project um my son was was very, my son is a teenager now, and my son was very small. And um, we were in Zimbabwe at the time, and he had a, um, a, a friend. He, we, still, we still have this friend, and she's called Fadzi. And she would come and play. She was a little bit older than him. So he was maybe four, and she was sort of seven. And what she would do is exactly what I did as a child. She would kneel down by um, the pile of books that he had at the bottom of his wardrobe. And she would she would pull them all out, not messily, and she would look at all of them. And my abiding memory of the two of them is them sitting with this pile of books. And my son, who, who actually had to be persuaded to read a book, but because he saw Fadzi reading them, he would also leaf through them as well and it and you know it, it's again that really important lesson about physical access you know if the book the books have to be low down so that kids can actually reach them and they need to be inspiring and and reading is catching you know if if if, if one kid um starts to read then then other the interest of others can often be sparked um and so yeah so a huge thanks to Fadzi who is now going to university um i think next year and and just the you know the impact she had on on my life back then and, and and the things that she made me think about. That's a great story. That's really great. Awesome. So what are people without library cards missing out on? That is a really good question. And I'm going to give you a, 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 a an answer that, that also takes into account the local context, which is that actually um, the price of a library card can be a barrier to access here. Um, and so I am really, really in favor of libraries, as places you can go to to read books, um, to study, to get ideas, even if you don't, even if you can't afford or your family can't afford a library card, still as a place you can go to and, and maybe not be able to take books out, but you have access to and exposure um, to those books. Um, so, yeah, library cards, great thing, not always possible. There, there needs to be ways around it. Wow. So you have to pay for a library card there, huh? Yep, quite often you do. Obviously not in the grassroots, you know, the grassroots and the library clubs and not in schools, but in some of the, the more formal libraries, there is a charge. Wow. That, I guess that's how they get the funding as opposed to how we do it here in the States. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not too clear on the, on the, on the funding model, um, but, but, but I do know that charges can be involved. So, so just to get the plugs out there, um, for those who would like to donate books, how do they get in touch and donate materials? So the easiest way, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram as um, at KPCZim on, on both of those. So I will always, um, you know, I, I will always try to respond when people reach out to me. I also, as much as I can, I try to retweet 
um, Zimbabweans who are doing great things um, in in the library world or in the in the you know publishing world here, and and try to give a a, a more a, you know a rounder picture of of what's going on in in, in the book world um, in Zimbabwe and in the region. So I guess they would hit you up on Twitter or Instagram to ask get more information, right? Absolutely. Yes, please. Excellent. Excellent. So Kate Chambers, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. That's great. Thank you for having me. Loved it. Thank you so much. We have come to the end of another episode of the Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.